Hello and welcome to Through the Telescope, the podcast that puts the lens on astronomy. I'm Rose Waugh and I'm an astrophysicist and science communicator. And I'm Elliot Bruce and I'm neither of those things, but I'll be trying to find out why we should even care about astronomy. We'll be exploring some of the big topics in the field in little manageable pieces and have some fun along the way. So, whether you know your red lines from your red shifts, or you're not quite sure what the difference between astronomy and astrology actually is, join us as we launch ourselves into the cosmos and try not to burn up on re-entry. Through the Telescope is sponsored by PicAstro, the astronomy and astrophotography image sharing app, dedicated to your images of the cosmos no matter what stage you are on your journey around the universe. No ads, spam or fake accounts. So Ro. Today, we've got a bit of a slightly different episode. Today, we're talking about Jodrell Bank. Yeah. So, what is Jodrell Bank? Uh, well, Jodrell Bank is a reasonably famous observatory um, in, in Cheshire. I, I think of it as in Manchester, but it's not actually in Manchester, um, in England. And um, it's pretty famous for its radio telescopes. I kind of assumed that Jodrell Bank was a telescope. So is it actually is it actually not a telescope? <laughs> yeah, um I think oft so often observatories have, you know, one kind of big telescope, um and a famous one, and so we often associate an observatory with a telescope or a telescope with an observatory. But Jodrell Bank is actually the observatory, so I think there are four telescopes there. Right. Um, and and one that's particularly big is the Lovell Telescope. Yeah, because when I think of Jodrell Bank, I do actually think of this massive, like, I mean, I guess compared to some telescopes. Oh, hang on, I've already, I've already started calling Jodrell Bank a telescope again. When I think of... Um, Jodrell Bank, I think of one massive telescope that's like a massive dish, and it's sort of got scaffolding. It looks like yeah, um, that's that's what it, what it is really. <clears throat> but I mean, to be honest, that's what a lot of radio telescopes look like. Okay, so it's a radio. It's got a radio telescope. Yeah, it, it has four. I think four telescopes, and I believe they're all radio telescopes. Okay, were they all built at the same time? No, no. Um, so, well, the site of Jodrell Bank was first used in 1945 okay. by someone called Bernard Lovell, um, who was a radio astronomer and uh, wanted to look at a whole bunch of things, as academics do, um, including cosmic rays. There weren't a whole bunch of telescopes on the site back then. Okay. It... Um, Think more mad academic in a field. I was going to say, is it one mad in a field? <laughs> With some repurposed World War II radar equipment. Okay. And you're, you're pretty much there. So I think the the field at the time, um, the like it was like the botanics department <laughs> <laughs> that, that had it. So it was obviously very different back then. So was it connected to like Manchester University or something? When you say yes. The botanics? So yeah, he, he okay. worked... Um, at Manchester University, okay. and um, they happen to have a field in Cheshire that they're like, sure, you can go and take your like bunch of random equipment to. So the story goes, mm. he was going to do his work in Manchester. Okay, but there was too much um, noise in the data, supposedly related to the trams, but. I don't really know enough about how trams work to to comment on that. But mm. um, so he ended up in a field, however many miles away, away from the trams. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and in fact, a little throwback to episode two, um, when he first turned on his radar 
at the site. Mm. It's radar equipment. It was during the peak of the Geminid meteor shower. Mm. So, um, yeah, we talked about talked about that in episode two. People should go and check that out if they haven't already. So, Dr. Lovell has gone to a field in Cheshire with his um, World War II <laughs> radar equipment to look at radio waves. As you do. Uh, not radio waves, sorry, cosmic waves with radio. <laughs> um, so what exactly are cosmic rays? Cosmic rays are high-energy particles that have come from space. Um, that might be from, you know, very far away, or it might be the sun. Okay. And generally, it consists of um, charged particles like protons or the nuclei of atoms. Generally pretty um, low, pretty small atoms, so, you know, like helium, for example. I guess that helps if it comes from the sun. Yeah. Hydrogen and helium. And on Earth, we're protected by our magnetic field or our magnetosphere. And also from the sun's magnetic field or the heliosphere, if you're talking about particles from outside of the solar system. And they were discovered in 1912 by a guy called Victor Hess, who also serves eccentric, old-fashioned scientist vibes. Is he in a field? Not quite, but you're going to like this. He's in a hot air balloon. That's even better. Does he have a moustache? Yes, he does, actually. Is it a twirly moustache or is it a big bushy moustache? I would say it's a bit more on the bushy side. Okay, like a a sort of, like a broom. Yeah, like a broom. Okay, yeah. yeah. Has he got a top hat? If you're in a hot air balloon, you need to have a top hat. Actually, he might do. I've not seen that many photos of him. Okay. Although I imagine, he, yes, he probably does wear a hat when he goes up in a hot air balloon, because that's going to be very cold up there. Yeah, I guess so, but maybe top hat's not the one to go for. Maybe well, more like a woolly hat. I'm going to be honest, the outfit he was wearing in the, one of the photos I saw was n- not something I would consider that cosy anyway. But Maybe he's got like... Style of a substance. Maybe you go into the hot air balloon in like a sort of Edwardian suit, mm. and then you get up there and you put on all your layers. Yeah, you pull out the jumper that yeah. your parents At least from At least like thermal bottoms, so you stay warm. But people can't see yeah, the basket. They can't see the bottom. It's a bit like yeah. when you're on Zoom these yeah. days. <laughs> it's the original Zoom goal. Balloon goal. Anyway, call. he liked to hop up in hot air balloons and, and do experiments. Uh, and he, in fact, won the Nobel Prize for his discoveries of cosmic rays. The 1936 Nobel Prize. For physics? Yeah, for Maybe physics, I'm pretty sure. So when you said cosmic rays, I assumed this was going to be some kind of electromagnetic, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, UV, radio waves, whatever. Yeah, it's but the word it's rays actually as not. well. Right. Isn't it? Yes. It really, like, makes you think mm. of that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. But I think, I think um, they were kind of thought that they would be originally... Right. Uh, yeah, I guess 1912. Yeah. I can't remember when X-rays are discovered, but so they're, they're kind of named in a similar way to like the the light equivalent of like gamma rays or X-rays or mm. whatever. But actually, they're things that have a mass, so not light. Right. Yeah. And so, why? Um, so, what kind of rays were was, was Dr. Lovell looking at? So there were different um, types. There were two classifications of cosmic rays, kind of. They're primary cosmic rays, which are the actual particles. And then you get secondary cosmic rays. And they come from the fact that when your cosmic rays, when your primary cosmic rays collide with the atmosphere of Earth, they, you know, those particles bump into the atoms or whatever that's in the atmosphere. And those atoms from the atmosphere then break into other particles. Okay. So it creates this kind of, like, shower of particles. Nice. Like a cascade. Yes, a cascade. That's the word I was actually looking for. Oh! Um... 
and though that cascade the, those bits of particles that used to be the atmosphere mm. are called secondary cosmic rays okay so if you are in space or you're at very high altitudes you might see actual primary cosmic rays that would you would be observing them directly in that case okay and if you are like dr lovell in your field in cheshire or dr hess in a balloon (laughs) then yeah presumably he wasn't that high up i don't know did he invent the hessian bag do you have a hessian balloon um if you are like one of those fellows then you would have used indirect observation methods so you're you're observing the extensive air showers, EAS, that's what they're called. Extensive. The, the secondary cosmic rays right. in the atmosphere. Or you are looking at the radio signatures of, of these showers. Okay. So that's probably what he would have been doing. So whilst there are multiple big telescopes there now, it, it mostly was a bunch of ex-military radar, radio equipment mm. for, for quite a long time. And the Lovell telescope that you you think of, that you picture in your mind's eye, yeah. when you uh, think of Jodrell Bank, was was built in about 1957. So, you know, that's a good, Can like, I... 12 years. Okay, so I, I would like to ask, so, um, Mr... Is it Professor... Professor Lovell, Dr. Lovell. Um, I don't know if he was at the time, but he most certainly will have been by the time they name yeah. a telescope after so, him. Yeah, so when you first said um, the Lovell telescope, right, before you'd said when it was, and you first had said that Mr. Lovell had gone out into a field, mm-hmm. was like, this is Jodrell Bank now, this is where I'm looking at stuff. And then they start building a telescope. I was like, did he just go, I want to name this telescope after me. (laughs) But I guess 12 years is probably like, yeah, somebody else has said he's put a lot of work in here, so we'll call it after after him. Yes, and also it wasn't the first telescope built on the site either. So it was was built to replace another one um, called the Transit Telescope, which, yeah, lasted about 10 years. So was Lovell um, was the Lovell one like the oldest one still there, or was it just the biggest? Just the biggest, okay. I think. Yeah. Um, but the Lovell was built in time to see the launch of Sputnik One, okay, the world's first artificial satellite. Now that was one thing that I had heard about Jodrell Bank was that mm-hmm. um, they were building it, and then I think the price tag went up because it's, like, publicly funded. Mm-hmm. And it's because, if I'm correct, I think it's because the government said, we would like to also use this facility to check on the Soviets. Yes, which they did lots of times, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, they, they uh, tracked Sputnik 1 eventually... Once they'd found it in the sky, it took them eight days after the launch of Sputnik 1 to find it. Um, but, yeah, they they definitely have tracked a lot of satellites from the Lovell Telescope, uh, not all of which have been Soviet. Okay. And um, they tracked uh, Pioneer 5, which went into space between um, Earth and Venus to look at interstellar space, into planetary space. That was That was a NASA... Um, mission. Was that to check so, it was going on the right direction, or was that just... Well, they actually sent messages to it oh. and told it to, to do various things um, and and received messages back um, from, uh, you know, a very, very long way away. And at the time, was it was the only telescope capable of of doing that. Mm. So I don't know anything about radios, let alone about radar or radio telescopes. Mm. But it's interesting because, you know, radar is, having said I know nothing about it, it is like bouncing radio waves back and forth. So I can see that a radio telescope can kind of come from that. 
But I also find it weird that a radio telescope can be used as, like, basically a radio transmitter and receiver if it's, like, communicating with mm-hmm. Pioneer. Five. Five. It's because they're ten. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, I guess it, it's, all telescopes are different because I kind of just think any telescope is just going to be, like, there's a lens. They just listen. And <laughs> even if it's not a lens, it's just, like, light comes in. And focuses it or whatever, and science comes out. But yeah, magic, magic mm. happens. But yeah, there was also lots of <laughs> lots of Soviet things going on there. Um, That's interesting. There was because... one I can't remember which. Oh, it was one. It was Luna Nine. So <clears throat> the Luna Nine that the Soviets had asked. Bank to to track and monitor on its way there. Um, the whilst Bank, well not whilst it had already got to the moon, but Bank noticed that the signal that they that it was you know sending out back to Earth just just happened to be uh, in the the system used by newspapers around the world for transmitting pictures to each other, like photographs. Okay. Uh, just just happened. As opposed to, like, scrambled or something, like, top secret. Yeah, like, different frequencies or whatever. Mm. Or, yeah. Um, so, the Daily Express mm. took one of their receivers very quickly the observatory and um they they got the first ever pictures from luna 9 and they published them worldwide <laughs> right before before the soviets did was that intentional by the soviets or yeah it's a really good question i mean so the bbc later speculated that the spacecraft um you know, scientists had intentionally done it this way. Yeah, so I'm just so so the Soviets have to asked, enable Jodrell Bank to. They've asked Jodrell Bank to track one of the mm-hmm. things, which I can also. I mean, I think it's also nowadays. I don't know, but it feels a bit like it's a bit odd because you have everybody fact checking and such. Like you have independent bodies that look at things, but. Back then, I guess you need like people with the biggest radio telescope in the world or whatever mm-hmm. to be able to yeah. check if something's actually happening. So I can also see, you know, you don't want as the Soviets to be like, we've landed on the moon and taken pictures on the moon, and here are the pictures, and people say, you've knocked it up in your garage. Because yeah. how awkward would it be if somebody said, you hoax the moon landings or something. Yes. Etc. Like, etc. Absolutely not. Look, there's loads of evidence here. Look. Yeah. Yeah, and people still ignore uh, you. So I can I can kind of see that there could be a can you just track this because we want sort of international mm-hmm. recognition. Oh oops, but, you just so happen to have published this for us. Which I guess also kind of leads into that as well, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, let's be honest, we don't we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and there could be a whole bunch of reasons, but I think that's a perfectly sensible one, especially with the the climate politically at the time. Like you say, if uh you know, if it comes from a, a different country, if it comes from the west somewhere like like Britain, someone like Cheshire. Say, oh, the Soviets are the first to take pictures on the moon and it's then published worldwide in newspapers. Mm. It's, like, pretty difficult for people to turn around and say, you're lying just because... just because they want it to be a lie, because they wanted to get there first or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, So, like, that's a perfectly logical explanation. I have also seen claims that maybe the scientists... Uh, which I think is a bit, I don't know, a bit more sceptical of this one, but maybe the scientists didn't um, want the 
these hugely scientifically important images to be used in a kind of political gain way by their own government. Um, which, I don't know, it's like, that's that's going to happen with any big science thing, mm. you know. You might not want it to be true, but it's still, it's still going to happen, you know. They still understandably could make a big deal out of the fact that they were the first to to take these pictures. It doesn't matter that someone else published first. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I guess they can still take the credit for it, and and quite rightly, <laughs> really. So I don't know. It's it's hard, isn't it? Because there also has, for a long time, been this uncomfortable thing of uh, science and politics being intertwined, and not everyone necessarily being comfortable with how that plays out. Because mm. um, whilst the scientists are, of course, always political, everyone has alignments and, and agendas but it's it, often politicians are not scientists and so they can take science and kind of try and spin it however they want, it doesn't necessarily Yeah, it's just it's the same as anything, isn't it? Yes, um... yeah uh, but, you know, that's, that's another thing I've read uh but yeah, I think there are a whole a whole bunch of reasons yeah. why, why that could have happened. But it, it seems, it doesn't seem accidental, does it? Oh, it just so yeah. happened that the system just happens to be identical to to the radio fax system, which is internationally <laughs> used mm. by newspapers. And it just happens that you happened to be looking at the right time. Yeah. Because if you Whatever. wanted it to be secret, it would be secret. Yeah. Um, I think the... I don't know. I mean, and you know, I, I obviously don't know how this mission is set up, but I do feel like there's going to be multiple scientists involved in in everything going mm-hmm. on. So, and also, if you did something like that and lost the privilege of mm-hmm. publishing it, then um, things aren't going to go well for you. But it also... It's not to say it wouldn't happen. You know... Also, did this did this science, which you know we think of it very much as science now because it's this hugely important like moment in our scientific history mm. it It wasn't just science, was it at the time? It wasn't really science at all. I mean, the moon landings weren't about science mm. Mm-hmm. Because so many presidents, including JFK, wanted to cut the program. Mm. You know, we credit JFK as being this, the president that took America and therefore really the world to the moon. He was dead when they got there. But Spoilers. he wanted he wanted to cut it. He didn't. He thought he wasn't actually that bothered. He, he made a speech. It's all about politics mm. at the time it wasn't really about the science i'm sure the scientists making the the equipment of luna 9 or whatever were interested in the science but there is no way you could be doing this kind of um this kind of research and being on these projects and expect that the politicians were not involved yeah so i don't know i find it personally hard to believe that that the the political elite of the Soviet Union didn't know that yeah. this was the system involved, and also, that that would be crazy. And also, it would completely ruin the careers of everyone who had. Yeah, and I, I feel like had if, been involved in it. If you wanted it as a, if you, as a political person, if you wanted it to be secret, you would ensure that it was secret because at that point in time, everything, all things to do with state security mm-hmm. and state secrets are going to be like and the soviets were very very good at secrets as well you know yeah yeah i, I can i guess i can also see you uh, looking at you chernobyl that's not gonna happen for ages <laughs> no one's that great at that one um 
Yeah, was that the point? Sorry, that one went right <laughs> over my head. Um, but yeah, so these you are know. the first pictures of the lunar surface, is it? Yeah. From the moon. It's taken I guess. from the moon. I mean, I were, can see it from here. Obviously, um, pictures taken of the moon from instruments not on the moon. Yes. Um, but yeah. Mm. So that's that wild story from history. I mean, looking at the picture, it is quite impressive, but it does also look a bit sort of like it was taken in the, what, 50s, 60s? <laughs> what, what year is this? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 60s. 66. 3rd of February, so actually the anniversary just happened. Hmm. Yeah. I and suspect only... if it was, you know, if they did a reprocessing of it, uh, yes, which someone probably has done, but yeah. it, it probably would look significantly better. I think um, also what's kind of crazy about the moon landings, or not the moon landings, but the space race, rather, is the Soviets land the first successful <laughs> um, probe, I don't know what you call it, the first spacecraft uh, land safely in 66, did you say? Mm-hmm. And then it's 69, right, when humans are on Captains the moon. Happens quickly. Um, pretty all in all. insane. Yeah. So that is when it was built, etc., and person that first set up the site everything but that isn't necessarily enough for it to be in my mind's eye as you say why do i know about total bank yeah um so i think part of it is a cultural thing which we'll come back to later i'm sure um it's, you know, had quite a big cultural impact in the UK, I think. Mm. Um, but from a scientific point of view, it's it's done a huge amount, you know, over its lifetime. Worked on various different aspects of astro as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's done a lot of work on meteoroids, which are basically, you know, space objects that are smaller than asteroids. Um and might become meteors. Um, It's done work on quasars, which I'm sure lots of our listeners will have heard about. But for those who maybe don't know the the definition, that's a supermassive black hole that um, is, you know, feeding off gas and dust in a galaxy. Um, And they have, like, you know, two beams of very bright light that come out of them. Isn't that all black holes just sucking everything in? Or do just some have dust around it, some don't? Are all black holes pulsars? Not pulsars, sorry, quasars. No. 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 I mean, you could... You could I mean, CERN make <gasps> small black holes in the lab all the time. They're definitely not in the middle of a galaxy and supermassive and sucking in a whole bunch of stuff. Jeez. Um... Don't go to Switzerland. They're definitely no threat to you. That <laughs> means specifically. <laughs> or anyone. Um, also did lots of work on pulsars, so they're neutron stars that rotate really, really quickly. And um, two big jets of, of light come out of them and we see them pulsing very quickly. Um, gravitational lensing, so... The, you know, we talked about that in the Exoplanets episode. Um, mm, yeah. Lots of work on that as well, including finding the very first gravitational lensing event. Well, not the first event of it ever. The first, <laughs> but the first that we had observed. Um, they measured the distance to the moon, measured the distance to Venus, a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, so it's done a lot of a lot of things. Is it still uh, still doing things? It's still researching things? Yeah, things? yeah, it's still a research centre um, and, and a teaching centre. 
Um, so, you know, they have a, a teaching telescope. A lot of universities have telescopes. Well, a lot of universities that have observatories have a telescope that's set aside especially for teaching the undergraduate courses. Mm. Um, so they have a, a, a teaching telescope as well. Is it still part of the University of Manchester? Um, yes. Its funding a lot of the time comes from STFC, um, especially for Global Bank and its its work. So that's the Science and Technologies Facilities Council. Um, and they're just a big funding body um, for the UK for science um, research. They also pay my wages. Yeah, so the STFC gets its funding from... The UK Research, UKRI is a research institute? Or yeah, research? so UKRI are the big kind of overseers yeah. um, of UK funding um, for not exclusively but especially academic research purposes. Mm. Um, and then there are a couple of like, you know, sub bodies, if you like, that fit into UKRI. Yeah. So that includes STFC. Um, and um, also EPSRC. Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. Yeah, amongst a few other things as well. Yeah, they have their own special little... Yeah, their own... Um, um, interests, yeah. I guess. But, but yes, it's still part of the university. It's still doing research. Um, so it's, yeah. you say it's got, like, a teaching thing for undergrads. Does it also have, like, teaching stuff for... Uh, members of the public and you just go along yeah um anyone can go to total bank i mean you can't <laughs> you can't go into like the control tower of the <sighs> that's where i want to go though of the telescope but they do they do do tours sometimes so okay. you know sometimes you can do but um yeah you can definitely visit the grounds and walk around the telescope you know you can get pretty close up to the telescope all things considered any of them really, but let's be honest, everyone is interested in Lovells. So. You want to go to the Lovell scope? And um, they also have a visitor centre. So everybody that would want to go would want to go and see the Lovell telescope, right? It's pretty yeah. big. I, I know that there are bigger ones out there. There are some crazy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, where does it rank on the... The world telescope, you know, and the Guinness Sizes. Book of Records, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's about seventy-six meters diameter for the dish, which, all things considered, isn't that big. Hmm. Um, I mean, it definitely feels massive when you're there looking up at it. Um, which goes to show how big some, <laughs> some telescopes can be. But um, it it's very big in that it's movable. Okay. So you can't move, you can't pick up the entire um, telescope. But it's it, you can steer the dish. It's mm. very movable. You've possibly even seen videos of it. Or if you've seen mm. the sky at night, you might have seen it happening. Stargazing Live, it was on there mm. a lot. And yeah, so you might have seen clips of it moving. Um, and in that sense, it's very big. Mm, so it yeah. used to be the world's largest steerable is it, radio telescope. Is it the Arecibo telescope in, I want to say, somewhere in Central America or South America, which is like a massive concrete dish, which I only know about because it's in the James Bond film where there's like a fight on the dish. Right, yeah. Um, might be a Pierce Brosnan one. Uh, but yeah, they ain't moving that. That's like that's built into mm-hmm. the <laughs> into mm-hmm. the ground or wherever. Yeah. So because obviously the so. bigger you make it, the more impossible that becomes. You need everything to support it in the first place, and then to then move it and have it supported properly at every angle yeah. you want to tilt it at, so, as well as the motors you must have to. Yeah. So there's you know there are benefits. Bigger is better in some ways. Um, you're going to be able to see further into the universe, but but you're stuck at an orientation. You're stuck, yeah. You can't move it at all. Um, 
which, you know, the Lovell has that nice balance of being big enough to be able to see quite a lot of stuff, but mm. you can also move it, you can steer it. Um, so, yeah, it's not the biggest anymore. It's now about the third largest of its kind, but that's still pretty pretty good going. Yeah, given it was built in the 50s, late 50s, was that? Yeah, that's yeah. Pretty good. Yes. And when it was built, the the motor systems were made from again with <laughs> with the World War Two stuff, made from repurposed gun turret mechanisms from a couple of battleships. Okay, fair, right. Okay, so it used to be turning like a so, big tower around to fire yeah. a massive cannon, yeah. and now now it's turning a a big radio dish around. Indeed. So. Uh, yeah, it's some pretty amazing engineering, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Also, just going back to the, you know, if you've got a stationary disc, if you've got the night sky going about you, well, I guess with a radio telescope, does it even need to be the night? Can it be daytime? Yeah, um, radio telescopes don't need it to be dark. So it can run 24-7? Yeah. Wow. Um, Clouds, not really a big problem, radio telescopes, yeah. It's Which is why you can still get the radio on cloudy days, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I guess if you've got like a stationary telescope, presumably you know even if you've got it, you've got it massive, you can have like really high, um, I don't know, like signal to noise or whatever, a really clear signal, as it were, for a brief period of time, to look at something as it's going directly above you. Whereas you can have a smaller one that's still big, but like you're able to track an object for a longer period of time and get not just you might lose the sort of resolution or the accuracy, as it were, but you can actually see sort of you can monitor changes in behavior rather than just waiting for it to come around the next yeah, day. Yeah, and I think that a lot of you know, because it kind of used to be the case in astronomy. It's kind of this, there's kind of this thought that, you know, astronomy is often, you, you like point your telescope at the sky and you look for something mm. and you see if there's something or not. But actually, <laughs> like a lot of astronomy is more seeing how things change. Mm. You know, it's a lot of science is not I've found a new object in the sky mm -hmm. you know it's it's watching objects and seeing how they evolve and um just like you say it's um more about tracking it and seeing if if things are, are different than last year or yesterday or you know whatever Mm -hmm. There's generally like a time, a time stamp involved. So being able to to look at something for longer can be very helpful. Yeah, I mean, um, when when we were talking about the exoplanets and how how we see how we know that there are exoplanets there, a lot of them were something goes past something, mm -hmm. or you know, there's like a time frame. Yeah. Um, which, given that it's like the orbit of planets as opposed to like, I don't know something on quite a short time frame, necessarily. You could watch the same thing for every single night, or, I guess, every single time that it passes overhead in one particular spot for years. Yeah, and, and never, never see, see anything, it. exactly, yeah. Um, whereas if you just were able to track it for a few hours, yeah. you've increased your chances of seeing something massively. But, so that's um, the Lovell Telescope, not named by Dr. Professor Lovell, um, also known as Man in a Field, um, <laughs> named after Man in a Field. Um, but you were saying earlier that it wasn't just that it has discovered things and tracked what the Soviets are up to, um, <laughs> but it's also, um, it's also got a place in culture. So what kind of, yeah. what sort of things, are there songs about it? Uh, <laughs> oh, probably. I mean, I don't know any off the top of my head, but... 
there's got to be some sort of astro um, band out it there. Was, just... Yeah, it must be in some songs, definitely. It was in some music videos in the 80s. Oh. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you which songs. Um, I guess was that when music videos were invented? <laughs> <laughs> I am too young to know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, well, I mean... I know that you you know it from Doctor Who. Well, I do know it from Doctor Who. You know Who. it from other places, though, but you you know it being in Doctor Who. To be honest, I think I just know it from Doctor Who because it's famous for uh, Tom Baker, uh, also known as the best Doctor, mm. um, even by people who have never seen him, yes. because we just know that he's got a long scarf, he likes jelly babies, mm-hmm. and he is the best, mm-hmm. and also went on for ages as Doctor Who. Because he was the best. Because he's the best. Um, he falls... Although, if David Tennant is listening, I will admit he is still the Doctor of my heart. I mean, I mean to be fair, I feel like they're two separate bits, right? Yeah. There's like old Doctor Who, new Doctor Who. Well, they are two different, um, different things completely. Tom Baker's reputation was established before the new Doctor Who's, so... Yeah. You know. Anyway, moving on from that. Um, yeah, he falls mm-hmm. from... Best Doctor ends because of Jodrell Bank. Uh, yeah, although actually not at Jodrell Bank. What do you mean? In that he uh, he regenerates mm. at Jodrell Bank, as far as the viewer is concerned. But it's, like, green-screened, because uh, they didn't have the budget to actually go there by the end of the series. But, well, uh, yeah, so, I think a lot of old Doctor Who was budget constraints, which is why a lot of aliens are like, it's yeah. covered in bubble wrap, <laughs> or... <laughs> They're wearing a cardboard box. They're painted green. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Daleks, uh, we've got lots of just, like, spare compost bins around the back. <laughs> Put a plunger on it and a whisk. I uh, love them. Anyway, yeah, so... But has also been in Doctor Who, Doctor Who quite a few other times. Oh, OK. Um, quite a few episodes. Not just that one. I think it was, like, another four or something. They've been back, but actually back. Um... Oh, like this time they filmed on location. Yes, yes. Um, it's in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mentioned oh. in the book and also the movie. In in which, in the first, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or like one of the, I don't know, is it like a pent- pentology? Yes. Pentology? It's mentioned in the first one. I think it might also be mentioned in one of the other ones, but uh, I wouldn't swear to that. I've only read the first one. I want to read the other ones. Been a long time since I read them, so I definitely need to reread them. But it started as a radio show, yes. so it's radio again. Yes, it's a very radio themed. Yes, and it's also episode. a very good radio show. Definitely, I've not listened to any of them. So. Yeah, uh, it's also apparently I've not read it, but I feel like I should go and read it now, having discovered this. Yeah. It's in a book called Boneland by a guy called Alan Garner. I don't know if any of our listeners have read it. If they have, you know, get in touch and, and tell me if it is worth reading or not. Uh, but apparently it's about an astronomer that works there. Okay. And um, so there's quite a few parts of the book where it's set, in set at Jodrell Bank. One place called Boneland. I don't know. You might find out <laughs> through me as I read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been in quite a lot of kind of that aspect of culture. Mm. Um, there's been concerts hosted there quite a lot. Um, Elbow played there. We yep. had seen that because that would have been amazing. They're Mancunian, right? Yeah. So, uh, Lots of other people have played there as well. Um, since 2016, they've been having the Blue Dot Festival. Okay. Which I still haven't been to. Really want to go. So I'm guessing the Blue Dot Festival is, like, in the field <laughs> that we're, like, at mm-hmm. Jodrell Bank. Yeah. Right? So is, is that also where Elbow, etc. played? Like, they had a stage there, as opposed to, like, standing on top of the dish. Yeah, not or... standing on top of the dish. Um... Again, I'm still having issues separating the Lovell Telescope from the Jodrell Bank mm-hmm. Observatory. Yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, so the Blue Dot in the field. But also it does, you know, spill over into into not the telescope but presumably the visitor's centre and stuff as well because it's like a it's like a steam festival so they Mm. have lots of science and stuff but they have lots of art and it's a nice mix between the two Mm. 
and supposed to be very, you know, good for families as well. So maybe now that we have a little one, might be nice for them to enjoy as well. I'll expect. I want to go for myself as well. So I'm not even going to pretend. <laughs> Use it as an excuse. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and you know, lots of other things. So we mentioned. Um, the Sky at Night and Stargazing Live. Stargazing Live was on, well, I don't know how many series there were. Yeah. Like four or something. Um, used to be on every January. And, um, yeah, it just was really cool. should probably clarify that Stargazing Live is a sort of, what would you call it? It's like a sort of science education sort of outreachy program i guess in the uk on the bbc hosted by dara o'brien mm-hmm. um irish comic and um another mancunian is he mancunian or is he just at the university of manchester um brian cox, brian cox not the actor the professor <laughs> um he he's a professor at manchester i always assumed he was mancunian i don't know also famous for being a is it keyboard player. Yeah, keyboard in player. D Ream. D Ream. Famous for things can only get better. All right, I think oh, we God. should. Okay. <laughs> I think we should put like a a thing of them, you know, a clip rather than us. I don't know. I was probably already going to get copyright infringement for just that snippet because that was just too close to the original. <laughs> um. Please do not put that in. <laughs> um. But yeah, they they have every year they're like based out of Triple Bank, aren't they? I think. Yeah, yeah. They it's like three it days or used to be yeah. hosted from the control tower. Triple mm. Bank also have a podcast called The Jodcast. You keep on, you keep on referencing Other rival <laughs> rival podcasts. Yeah, you know, in case people want to get more astro in their life. So, yeah, they do lots of outreach and stuff like that, including including their podcast. And yeah, they've just had like a you know a huge impact on on culture to the extent that. The Lovell Telescope was granted Grade 1 listed building in 1988, which is, you know, uh, in the UK, it's like the the highest, the most important, you know, grade you can be given to a building to say, this is of huge cultural importance, and if you want to make any small change to this building, then we have to okay it. Yeah, which means the Lovell Telescope isn't getting a conservatory put on the yeah, end anytime soon. because the government would never say yes to that. That makes maintenance sound like that's yeah, going to be hard Yeah, I think it well. makes maintenance hard. But, um... It's kind of weird yeah. when a building is also, like, an instrument. Yes. <laughs> uh, and there's another telescope that also has grade one status. Um, so, yeah... Uh, but it's also a UNESCO World Heritage site. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's it's been honoured in its you know, cultural significance and importance. Which is quite nice to yeah. see an astro-themed, you know, thing, kind of making it big in that kind of way. And was that just sort of a recognition of everything, or was there one particular, like, you were the largest movable radio telescope do you know what I mean yeah I think it was more a bigger picture thing but um I don't know I didn't sit on the panel (laughs) so basically you know I just thought it would be kind of nice to to chat about Jodel Bank and just yeah just mention it because I think it's um it's a cool place Mm. you know and there are so many just cool observatories and and telescopes around the world and it would be fun to chat about some of them mm-hmm. um, because they're, they're a huge part of astronomy and astrophysics. It's not necessarily the hardcore science, mm. but it's, it's part of our story of exploring the universe and understanding our place in it, you know, our humanity. Mm-hmm. Was that a bit too deep? 
now I got pretty deep. Um, it's, it also looks cool. That's the main. That's the main thing. It looks cool. It does look very cool. Um, and I have to say, you know, out of all of the observatories that I've been drawing in my little art project mm. over the past however long, um, it it uh, it's sure got a lot of scaffolding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot. Yeah. Are there any other ones to rifle it for scaffolding? Um, I would also say scaffolding makes it sound like it looks ugly, but I think if you look at a photograph, it, it's like good scaffolding, as it were. Yeah, it's very geometric and satisfying, isn't it? Mm. Um, all the kind of all the triangles and stuff. It does look quite impressive and neat, I guess. Scaffolding can look very messy. Yeah. And maybe that's an unfair word to use, but I don't really know which other word I would use in its place. Yeah. It doesn't look messy. No. They keep it keep it in good nick. Looks like. Yeah, I don't know if there are any to, to rival it. Uh, to be honest, a lot of radio telescopes um, <laughs> look the same. <laughs> look pretty similar. Yeah, they they do look pretty similar. So in that sense, any radio telescope is gonna. Mm. Have a lot of scaffolding. I guess they probably just get the separated. bigger it is, the more it has. Yeah, I guess it gets separated into. Can it move? No, it's just a giant concrete dish. Can it move? Yes, it's a giant dish supported by a lot of scaffolding. Mm-hmm. So that just about wraps things up for this episode. Please, can we encourage you to subscribe to Through the Telescope wherever you find your podcasts, and if you like, you can leave us a nice positive review as well. It really helps the show and it makes it easier for more people to find us. Feel free to send us any comments, questions, or suggestions of things or people you'd like to hear about or from in future episodes. Or perhaps to put yourself forward to chat about your own astro research or experiences. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Through the Telescope Podcast, or you can find me at astrophysicist underscore rose. You can also find us on Twitter at The Telescope Pod, and you can contact us by email at Through the Telescope Podcast at gmail.com. And with that, we'd like to thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye! Bye.